Let's pray. Father, again, we, we thank you for fun opportunities like that, Lord, that reach out to the community and beyond, and we pray that you would continue to uh, strengthen uh, the children's ministry and the youth ministry, Lord, and other ministries here that we have to offer um, so that people would have an intimate relationship with you. Um, that's our encouragement, Lord. Thank you for your word now, and I pray that you would speak to us through it and allow uh, it to be clear, and uh, I just commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get into the account on uh, Joseph, uh, I just want to say this, and I, it's my hope that our interaction with God's Word as we go through this, and not only this, but as you have your time alone in the Word of God um, at home, or you're listening to other uh, pastors and sermons, uh, that, you would, that you would take the Word of God and you would allow it to infiltrate you in such a way that it would be transformative, that there would be some questions that you would ask about it. You would say, you know, what is God saying to me through this? And how, how might I think or act differently having been exposed to the living and active Word of God? How, what is it, Lord, that you would have me do or not do? And, and just if you just avail yourself to the Word of God like that, that would be, uh, I think, something warm to the heart of God because he wants that intimacy with us. Now, if you're, if you're reading through the story of Joseph and Genesis, and you come to chapter 38, you are bound to say to yourself, what a weird chapter. <laughs> and, uh, and what does this have to do with the story of Joseph? Well, some people, they start to read chapter 38, and they're like, ooh, okay. And we get to chapter 39 when it gets back to Joseph's life. Enough about Judah and his group. Well, we're not going to do that. Um, I might have been tempted to say, read, read chapter 38 on your own, and we'll get back to chapter 39, uh, the story of Joseph. But after much prayer and contemplation, there is, there is no way around chapter 38, and I believe God has it there to strike a stark contrast between two lives, the life of Judah and the life of Joseph, his brother. Two completely different uh, individuals. And I believe God, the author of all scripture, inserted this as a peek into Judah's life for a, just for a couple reasons. And I'll put my reasons up here. First of all, God is sovereign. He's in sovereign control. No one can thwart his plan. No one uh, can change, or no matter how strange they behave, God's plan will move forward. Even if it's evil, even if it's perverse, God is in control. Yesterday, I, when I have my quiet time, often what I do is I, I turn also to a proverb, and I correspond the proverb with the date. So there's 31, we don't always have 31 days, but... Yesterday was the 21st, and I happened to read Proverbs 21. And 21.30 says this, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. And so, talk about trying to thwart 
the uh, plan of God, it's, it can't be done. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Secondly is, I believe God has us there to accentuate the life of faithful Joseph as compared to his brother Judah. And so I was looking for a way to convey this, and I actually used this a couple years ago, and I, I hope I don't butcher this too badly, but I, I, I believe God has us on a detour from the events of Joseph's life. Um, and why does he have that? Well, I think he's creating this masterful painting, much like he does in our lives. And <clears throat> he allows ver various circumstances to occur for the sake of bringing out his wonderful plan and to bring his plan to the forefront. And so he allows us to be surrounded by various need I say characters sometimes, good and bad. I'm no artist, and so I had to turn to somebody who was an artist, and that is Andrea Griffith. And she says this, art isn't just about painting or drawing a beautiful picture. It's about how color can alter, enhance, and even intensify the picture being painted or drawing. And then she goes on to describe this. I won't get into too much, but she says, you know, these, there's these... Um, Wonderful artists, these, you know, these, 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 the greats, the masters, again, Van Gogh and Da Vinci and Michelangelo and Picasso and Vermeer. And one of the things, one of the threads that ties these individuals together is they would use um, different colors, colors that would oppose each other to bring out their art and to accentuate a certain color. And so they would use this color wheel in, in opposing colors. And he usually uses the example of uh, Johannes Vermeer's famous painting, as many of you probably have this hanging in your uh, house, and that is Girl uh, with a Pearl Earring. And uh, you see the black background. It really kind of pops the, the white earring out. If it was painted today, it would be Girl with a Painted Nose Ring, probably. But the, the, the colors are used in such a way to bring forth um, the object and uh, in, in in, in, in bringing this forward. <laughs> you know, I've already exhausted my explanation of art. And um, if my son, Andrew, who is an artist, ever listens to this sermon, he probably would shake his head and say, Dad, you know nothing about art. <laughs> you better stop. And I'm going to stop there. But I use this for an example for a reason. I, I believe God in his infinite wisdom takes time to bring to the forefront his wonderful truths and showing us contrasting lives, the life of Judah and the life of Joseph. And by the way, I, I would ask that as I read most of chapter 38, do not concern yourself with the timeline as much as the different lives that are being shown here. It's as if God is letting us see a huge part of Judah's life for the purpose of contrast, and not so much did this all happen while Joseph was at Potiphar's house, because you won't get a match up there in the timeline, trust me. And before going any further, let me say this, because <laughs> this is the whole point of the sermon, and if you Remember nothing else. Remember this as you leave. May our lives shine brightly. 
against the dark contrasts of the world, especially in the world that we live in right now. May our lives shine brightly against the dark contrasts of this world. And so ready or not, uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to do a little bit of jumping around, and because we have mixed audiences, I might not explain everything, and uh, you can explain things to your kids if you wish on the way home. Um, and I say that for, for those of you listening online also. I'm also, because of last night, I was struggling reading the ESV version for some of this, and because it's story-like, I'm going to uh, interweave a little bit of the New Living Translation. Um, uh, not the paraphrase, but the translation, so we should be good. I'm going to start with the, uh, the ESV, and this is verses 1 through um, 8. It happened that at the time that Judah, at that time, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her. Now, let me just pause there for a moment and say this about his wife. We never get to know his wife's name. She's the daughter of Shua. And one other time in scriptures, she's described, I think it's the first or second chronicles in, in the genealogy as Bathsheba, which just seems, this just means Shua's daughter. And uh, so it's unfortunate, but that's all we have on her. And she, that's not all we have on her, but that's what we have for her name. And so she is the daughter of Shua, and Judah has relations with her. And she conceived and bore a son, and, and he called his name Ur. I guess she was born in the emergency room. Um, okay. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizub when she bore him. Okay, now we're going to fast forward uh, only between verses 5 and 6 because something happens here. Er, er grows up because now he's at age to be married. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Of course, that's back in the day when they had prearranged pre weddings. Much like Chip and I, when Hannah and Ben got married, we cut a deal in the parking lot, and it uh, <laughs> seems to be working so far. Anyhow, back to Tamar. Tamar was her name, and, but Ur, unfortunately, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Wow. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. And now i got to pause again because I have to explain something, the custom of the, the, the Leverite, um, meaning husband's brother-in-law, excuse me, husband's brother, law of marriage. And uh, where the second son, if he was not married, um, would actually take the wife of his deceased older brother and, um, and have relations with her and, she, and that firstborn was to be named after the dead brother. 
And if I didn't explain that well, let's just turn to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. We're going to do, we're, now, this is the New Living Translation. If two brothers are living together on the same property, and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone else outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son shall, excuse me, the first son she bears uh, to him shall be considered the son of the dead brother, and, and that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. But if that man refuses to marry his brother's widow, she must go to the town gate and say to the elders assembled there, my husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law by marrying me. The elders of the town will then summons him and talk to him. If he still refuses and says, I don't want to marry her, <laughs> then the widow must come walk over to him in the presence of the elders, pull off a sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and then she must declare, this is what happens to a man who refuses to provide his brother with children. Even afterwards, in Israel, his family will be referred to as, are you ready? The family whose man, the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. It completely destroys, by the way, the respect of that family moving forward. No one would trade with them. No one would farm with them. They couldn't be a community leader. In fact, in that day, we have some writings from Josephus that we refer to. When they would refer to a good man, they would say, he's a good man. He has two sandals. Well, this man, and he got one. He ain't going nowhere. I could see the political ads there. Um, Okay, you get the point. Onan, when it came time for him to spend with his new wife, supposedly, the wife of the deceased brother, he, he would try to make himself impotent. That's putting it mildly in verse 9. You can read it for yourself, and you can uh, explain it. But Genesis 38, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 10 through 14 to start in the New Living Translation. The Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah became wise, and he's wise in his own mind. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my, my son, Shelah, is old enough to marry you. We, I think we know that Judah didn't really intend to make good on that promise at all. He just wanted to keep Shelah from dying like his two brothers. It's interesting that Judah doesn't correct the problem with his boys. He just says, I'm, I'm not going to give them in marriage because they keep dying, because God keeps striking them down. So Tamar went back to live with her father, excuse me, live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died as <clears throat> after... The time of mourning was over. Judah and his friend Hira, the Olamite, uh, went up to Tim 
Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up now. But no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed, she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance of the village of uh, Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. Okay, so you understand that Tamar realized that Judah had no intentions of making good on his promise to provide she, uh, Shelah as a, as a husband to her. And by the way, as long as Shelah was alive, she wasn't permitted to marry anybody else. <laughs> so she would remain barren, which was uh, a point of humiliation for her. So Tamar, wanting offspring, tricked her father-in-law in this way. Let's get back to verse 15 now. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and he propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. How much will you pay me to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I will send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what shall you give me as a guarantee until, I, until you send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, Leave me your identification seal, its cord, and your walking stick you are carrying. So Judah left them with her. Then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went home, took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes as, she, as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend, Hera, the Adolamite, to take the young goat to the woman and pick up his things that he had given as a guarantee. But Hera couldn't find her. So he asked the men in that area, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting by the road at the entrance of Anam? We never had a shrine prostitute here, they said. So Hera returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of that village claimed that they didn't even have a shrine prostitute there. Let her keep the things, Judah said. I did send the goat, and I did what I agreed, but you couldn't find her. We will be the laughingstock of the village if we go back and try to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she is pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. Oh, he's so righteous, isn't he? <laughs> but as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent a message to her father-in-law. Hey, the man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely at whose seal and cord and walking sticks, uh, stick are these. Judah recognized them immediately and he said, oh, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange the, her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When you think about it, she got his goat without getting his goat. <laughs> Anyhow, verse 27, I'm just going to go ahead and finish um, what happens here, because it's, it's instrumental to God's plan moving forward in spite of what happened. When the time came Tamar gave birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. 
While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand and the midwife grabbed it and tied a, red, a, a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand and, the, and out came his brother. What? The wife exclaimed, how did, this, how did you break out first? And so his name was Perez. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his, uh, on his wrist was born, and she named him Zara. Okay, I'm going to stop there. This whole story, it's a giant story in itself, and we could spend weeks on this, um, but let's just look at it from the master painter's perspective. Three important reminders that I think we gain from this. First of all, despite the darkness of man's sinfulness, God's sovereignty prevails. Despite the darkness of man's sinfulness, God's sovereignty prevails. And you think of the dreams that Joseph had where his brothers were bowing down to him and they would serve him one day. Well, that got to Judah, obviously. And Judah sold him into slavery to prevent God's will from moving forward. Joseph not only survived, but he found himself now in Potiphar's palace in command of all things. Judah never addressed the dishonorable actions of his sons. And he never followed through with the marriage of the uh, Levirate that was supposed to allow his youngest son to marry Tamar. And even though Tamar used deceitful ways, it's interesting, isn't it, how Judah's bloodline continues, particularly through Perez. <laughs> And it, and it reminds you of um, of um, who am I thinking here? Here, the, the twins in the second one was born, and and so like Jacob and Esau is what I'm thinking of, and the older would serve the younger, and the same thing is happening here. But the interesting thing is, as we move forward into the bloodline of Jesus Christ, who is he referred to as? the Lion of Judah. <laughs> and so God's grace, even over some weirdness, God's grace and his plan still moves forward. And so we need to remember that. I think when we're in the midst of, of confusing times and difficult times, and we look back and we, we say, oh God, I thought you promised this. I thought you were gonna make good on this. I think we need to, as a way of application, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. He will work it out. He always makes, um, we always make a mess uh, when we try to do things in our own power and we don't wait. And so we want to wait on the Lord and see him uh, provide his way. Secondly, God uses us to ensure that the light is shined on him. God uses us to ensure that the light is shined on him. So you have Judah and his sons, and they are selfish, they are sexually perverted in their behavior, and it looks like God's will is going to be hindered here, but God pushes forth. Even the most disgusting of behaviors, he moves through that with his plan going forward. Again, I wanted to avoid this chapter, um, but because we waded through it, I think, as the farmer says, there's no milk without manure, and sometimes you just got to push forward through. 
I want us to peek into verse into chapter 39 here next, and next week I'll get I'll go further there. But Joseph, we will see, is faithful and righteous in his thoughts and in his behavior. But before that, let me just give us a way of application for this number two. And that is, if our hearts are right, we will do what's right. Remember Jesus, over and over again, he reminded us that it's, it's the heart that is at issue. Um, they came to him and they said, you know, can a man divorce his wife, you know, and what are, what are the ways? He said, you know, you're, you're getting that wrong. You're not even supposed to look at a woman um, with adultery in your heart. And he's, Jesus always made it a heart issue because if you get your heart right, you don't have to like have this checklist. What should I do? What should I do? And, and uh, Joseph was one who had his heart right, so it would come automatically. So no matter, um, it's not a matter of us trying to do things better. It's, it's a matter of us getting our hearts right. Let me go ahead and read 12 more verses, if you can endure my reading here. <laughs> Back to Joseph's life. Uh, and if you remember, his brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites when they were coming they were coming through. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 39 now. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and in his field. So he left all that he had into Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concerns about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Let me pause this for a moment and say, we're about to see the differences between Judah and Joseph clearly here. Verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put me in charge of everything that he has. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie with her, or even be with her. But one day, he went into the house to do his work, and none of the, none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. Okay. Now, just a couple months ago, I actually preached on that whole section, and it was a sermon called Overcoming Sexual Temptation, which, by the way, for this, this past year, I got more comments on that particular sermon than any other sermon from this year. And I think that's a struggle in our society today. 
But I, I, I want to bring out here the differences between Joseph and Judah. Joseph isn't looking for a, a temple prostitute. He wasn't looking for sensual pleasure. He was looking to honor God. And I love how he responds to her and says, how could I do such an evil thing? And he doesn't say against Potiphar, your husband, against you, but he says against God. He didn't want to sin against God. That's a hard issue. Because once you get that right, then you can begin to make good decisions. And so I, I also want us to look at this from the perspective of the trial that he's going through at the time, too. Because I believe this is a transformational issue that we deal with. You see, God is calling us to holiness, I could say even, but in particularly during times of trial. You see, Satan doesn't let us go, or doesn't let any one of us go, just because we're going through a hard time. <laughs> and so he actually, Satan loves to kick you when you're down. And so don't be surprised when you're trying to overcome or get through a difficult trial in your life that temptation is presented to you on a silver platter. Joseph, if you think about it, his life was originally threatened by his brothers. Then they throw him in a pit. Then he was sold into slavery. And then he's traded again from the Ishmaelites to a Potiphar and to be actually a slave in a house, although he becomes head of that house. And so now he's far from home. He's far from the father who loved him more than anyone else. <laughs> and now he has the opportunity to enjoy a night with one of the hottest women in Egypt. And no one's home. <laughs> and what does he do? He flees. He runs from that. And so the application, I believe, is by God's grace, we can overcome temptation that comes our way in the midst of trials. And this is what I was speaking at, or speaking about at the beginning of the sermon. God is at work in each of his children. And you're exposed to his word, and sometimes you're exposed to his word, and in that time of silence and solitude, it's revealed to you what his will is, and you get really excited. I want to go this direction. I want to follow God. I want to go deeper with him. And what happens? All of a sudden, trials come. Difficulty comes. God is calling us to be the light of the world, especially in the pit of despair. And what does this mean? Let me give you some examples. When you are financially challenged, look out. Satan will tempt you to fight with your spouse instead of working out the problem of your finances. You become enemies for some reason. Don't, don't go there. When you're dealing with a sick child, tempers still flare among parents. When there's a death in a family, there are still siblings that are tempted to fight over the estate. When you're humiliated at work, the temptation is to get the people back, the ones that are at work that, that, are, that are humiliating you. When you are dumped by friends at school, you're tempted to go down that path of either drinking or, or get into drugs. And God is calling us. He's calling us as his children. He's calling you as his child. And he's saying to you, I love you. And I know it hurts, but you can, by my grace, live above the difficulty. And he pulls out this canvas, and it's dark, and it's black. And he puts you on that canvas, and you are bright. No, you are brilliant. You are radiant. 
because of his grace. May our lives shine brightly against the dark contrast of this world. It was Jesus who said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Remember this in your trials. The tempter will want to tempt you away, but you have a great God in you who is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we waded through a lot here, a lot of uncomfortable verses, Lord, but I thank you that your word is raw and pure, and it reminds us of what we're surrounded with even in this day. We're also reminded, Lord, that your plan, your will, will succeed. And Lord, give us strength in the midst of uh, our nervousness, our uh, anxiousness. And Lord, overcome, would you? Overcome in the midst of our trials. Help us to see that way of escape through Jesus Christ and take it. Give us strength to flee when we need to flee. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.